Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Today's episode is brought to you by The Heroine's Knot, an online community for creative creatures on the quest for self-expression and collective renewal. In this group, we untangle the knots of our contemporary creative lives, connect to the greater web, and weave new stories. Part healing space, part writing and creative community, part innovation incubator, part training ground for heroines seeking practical and magical solutions to the individual and collective dilemmas that shape our modern world. In The Heroine's Knot, we call on mythology, archetypal wisdom, and our relationship with nature. We root into something wild and timeless, even as we design something new and necessary that will guide our next evolutionary steps. Learn more about the Heroines Not community over on my website, marisagowdy.com, or check the show notes for the link. Season 2, Episode 6, Lost in the Wild, At Home, Within, a story of Mad Sweeney told by Marisa Gowdy and a conversation with Michaeline Rule. Our guest this week is Dr. Michaeline Rule. Michaeline has been a psychotherapist in private practice for over 14 years and is the founder of Constellation Healing Arts, where she holds safe and sacred space for people experiencing anxiety, depression, trauma, and other life challenges. She also supports folks who have experienced plant medicine journeys via integration sessions. This year, Michaeline is launching the Sacred Immersion Training Program, which offers healing professionals the skills and insights they need in order to hold safe and sacred space for themselves and others, particularly on plant medicine journeys. I am so excited to welcome Michaeline Rule here with us on Not Work Storytelling today. As is our way on the show, we let the story speak for itself. And then we dive in and talk about why it still matters. So let me tell you the story of Sweeney. And then Michaeline and I will explore this weird, wild, and wonderful tale together. We live in a domesticated age. Taxes and central air. Dentistry and factory farming. It seems like every inch of the planet is mapped and the secrets of fire and flight are well understood. And yet... There's a call to something that comes before and which will surely come after civilization has run its course and the oceans reclaim the subways and the zoo creatures take over streets that will someday have no name. But this isn't the story of an apocalypse, at least not on the global scale. It's the story of a single man in exile, a single king who lost his crown, his queen, his community a single creature who knew and broke the laws of his time, and then, in time, lost track of time and law and lost track of his mind altogether. Fado, Fado, and Aaron. Sweeney, son of Coleman Coeur, was the king of Dal'eri. His world hasn't vanished, 
We just call it County Antrim and County Down now. He lived in those in-between times in Ireland, when the church bells were heard in the Druids' sacred groves. It was a time of fluidity and a time to choose sides. Did you double down on the old ways, or did you declare yourself a modern rebel and follow this new fellow, Jesus? Whether you were concerned about the state of your soul or your earthly social status, it must have been a tricky time to navigate. What was one to do when the new priests came to town, all fiery with their talk of a son of God who lived in a world of hot sun and great cities, of walking upon water and rising from the dead? There's that allure of the something new, after all. Fresh characters, new promises, and the possibility of peace in a land that was constantly torn with conflict. Why not give it a try? How are the people of Ireland to know that the wars fought by one band of Christians against another would be so brutal, too? Sweeney reigned in such a time, and he was the sovereign of his realm. It was his duty to protect the land, the people, the culture, and the gods who were rooted there. And so, he met the new way of being and praying with the only way he knew. Domination and violence. He was making his rounds in his kingdom when he heard an unfamiliar sound, a church bell. He walked with his wife, Oran, and she could recognize the vicious gleam in her husband's eye. She grabbed hold of the hem of his cloak before he could charge off into the woods in search of the source of that holy terror. The brooch that held together his crimson garment snapped, and Oran watched helplessly as her husband's bare arse disappeared into the brush. Sweeney disappeared from his wife's sight, but I invite you to see him, running buck-naked toward a priest, a man who'd be remembered as St. Ronan. Sweeney grabbed the cleric's prayer book, a beautifully illustrated psalter, and tossed it into the lake. Then Sweeney came after the man himself. Sweeney was dragging Ronan through the priest's own church, most likely ready to do something much worse than throw him into a baptismal font. Just then, Sweeney's kingly duties saved him from committing what seemed like a rather personal crime. A messenger came and called Sweeney to the battlefield at Moira, where Congolclean needed aid in the fight against High Prince Donal. Without a word, Sweeney dropped the saint before the altar and went off to take up his sword, and presumably to get dressed. Ronan collected himself and started working on a powerful rage. You can decide whether it was a holy and righteous anger or not. This is a story of human faith and wild nature, but it is not a story with clear boundaries of any kind. The other world would always be close at hand. Humans and animals couldn't be bound by modern standards of possible. The next morning, an otter emerged from the lake, and he held the psalter, completely unharmed, in his sweet little otter hands. Ronan paused long enough to thank God for the miracle, and hopefully to thank the otter and remark upon how inconceivably cute that animal was before getting back to the matter at hand, cursing Sweeney all the way across the country and into the grave. As the poet Seamus Heaney, whose Sweeney astray inspires this retelling, translates Ronan's curse, he shall roam Ireland mad and bare. He shall find death on the point of a spear. Now, not all dreams come true, and it's unclear whether every prayer is answered. In this case, we know that Ronan's curse did indeed come to pass.
St. Ronan was a man of action himself. He wasn't going to just sit on the steps of his church waiting for his nemesis Sweeney to lose his mind and take the role of vagabond until he was skewered by a pointy object. Ronan obsessed about the nature of Sweeney's crimes for a while, and then took himself off to the Battle of Moira, where he hoped to broker a peace between the warring factions. Ronan wasn't able to stop the fighting altogether, but he did bring a gentility to the proceedings. The warriors agreed to limit their attacks to a daily schedule. Well, every warrior but Sweeney. The cursed king of Dalary was sure to kill a man before and after each day's battle. Now, was that spite against the church and the saint who had made such fierce incursions upon his beloved pagan homeland? Was it an insatiable bloodthirst in a generally faulty character? You'll have to decide as I spin out the long, sad story of Sweeney's fate. On the day of the decisive final battle, Sweeney was the first to the field. Remember, we've already seen him naked as the day he was born once in this tale, and you already know that Ronan's curse dictates that he shall someday be mad and bare. On this day, however, the poet spared a dozen lines to describe the silk and satin, the gemstones and gold, and all the embroidered crimson finery that Sweeney wore. Clearly, this was a man with much to lose. He was also a man who was hard to change. Ronan and his priests stuck around, hoping to be useful and dousing both sides in holy water. When they got to Sweeney, they offered him an extra dose. Sweeney was clearly irked that he hadn't had the chance to finish Ronan off properly after the whole holy book gets the unholy baptism thing. Convinced that the priest and his eight clerics were mocking him, Sweeney hurled his spear into the holy crowd. Instantly, one of Ronan's priests dropped dead. Sweeney didn't stop there. He let a second spear fly, and it lodged itself in the great bell that hung around Ronan's neck the same bell that had caused so much trouble with its ringing in the first place. Essentially apoplectic with fury, Ronan cursed Sweeney again. It wasn't enough that he would die at spear point after years of wandering the island of Ireland naked and mad. Ronan added perpetual suffering, and again, to borrow from our modern poet, Ronan declared, I will curse you to the trees, bird brain among the branches. At battle's end, Sweeney goes through a transformation that we might compare to a moon-crossed mortal becoming a werewolf. But instead of transforming beneath a midnight moonlit sky and howling at his fate, Sweeney sprouted feathers and was destined to carry the unbearable weight of seeking forever, fruitlessly, for hearth and home. The question will linger in the air. Was it the terror of the battlefield or the curse of the cleric that broke Sweeney's brain once and for all. And then Sweeney's exile began. It's a long, sad story. A decade and more of geographical bingo as the erstwhile king became a temporary resident of everywhere and nowhere, from the farthest western islands to the greenest eastern glens and up and down and back again. It is said that Seamus Heaney, Nobel Prize winner that he was, struggled with the telling of this story, laboring over the manuscript that was written down in the 1670s, but has its roots in the 9th century, if not before. 
Mr. Heaney says he was drawn to forage for the best lyric moments, but he eventually would tell it all with a few omissions. He spoke of earning the right to do the high points by undertaking the whole thing. We all owe a debt to Seamus Heaney and the ways he soldiered through. He did the dirty work over 80 pages of verse so I could tell you a story in less than 20 minutes. We're skipping the bits with the endless toing and froing, the whinging and the lamenting, and even the recovering and the backsliding. No, no, wait. There's something valuable in there. We only tell these stories because they have something vital to say to us in this moment. A tale of a man with a certain kind of power who acted with outrageous violence because he didn't like the way the world as he knew it was being disrupted. The way a certain approach to God could roll over an indigenous culture and declare itself the one true faith and overwrite any number of cultural traditions and truths based on the ruthless will of the religiously minded. (laughs) There's quite a lot there for us already. But also, I need to take you into the mind of our anti-hero, Sweeney. He's the rightful sovereign and a wrong-headed murderer, of course. He's brave enough to run bare-arsed into battle before he puts on some fabulous threads for the final fight. He's vicious enough to murder an unarmed novice monk because he was pissed at the young fellow's boss. And he's rather a sympathetic, lonely figure whose punishment often seems inhumane and, as he often tells it, quite worse than death. Over the course of his wandering, Sweeney seems to find and lose the Christian god. He roosted in the blackthorn and the whitethorn, flesh and feathers torn to shreds, because, remember, he'd been turned into a being who was as much bird as he was man. He called up to the heavens, seeking redemption and forgiveness. This longing for the church is all woven with his longing for his wife, his court, and his nice warm dinners. The man did have to eat a terrible amount of watercress. And though he doesn't meet many folks in his years of travel, He's sure to always mention the curse that is a diet of cress whenever he enters a conversation. But then there are moments when his heart is with the great stag, the wolf pack, and the heron stalking the marsh. Alder is a darling, ivy a genius, birch is blessed, and the bushy, leafy oak tree is the highest in the wood. He composes poetry for his love of Ireland's trees. He rides a fawn and becomes one with the greatest king deer in the herd. Of course, Sweeney isn't just a tourist, nor is he just an exile. He'll be remembered as Sweeney Guilt or Sweeney the Madman. We have a chance to pause and remember that he's a soldier who lost himself on the battlefield at Moira. There's a more sensitive way to speak of his afflictions the mental illness that robbed him of his sense of peace, his ability to build connections, his ability to ground into reality and act to become master of his own fate. Along the path, his wife tries to defy the curse and call him back to sanity and to her side. But in a later encounter, it's clear she's moved on. In another part of the tale, Sweeney discovers he's not alone. At a place called Glen Bolcane, he finds refuge with Ireland's other cast-offs and lunatics, others who cannot fit into society because their minds work differently than everyone else. But, of course, 
he's destined to move on before his healing is complete. Later, he'll meet a friend, a fellow soldier, exiled and mentally ill, who understands his suffering. That friend, Alan, will die by suicide within the space of a page. There are hallucinations and nightmares, moments of hope and inevitable tides of despair. A once-trusted foster brother stages an intervention and lures Sweeney back to civilization for a time. But that all ends in betrayal and disaster. There's an old mill hag, the trickster of this tale, who entices Sweeney back to the wild. He spends as much time blaming her for her trickery as he spends placing counter curses on St. Ronan. But it all seems that he does protest too much. It's the consequences of his own actions that keep sending him back to the hinterlands. It's his own wild nature, too. In the end, because this story and Sweeney do have an end, our weary hero finds himself at a place called St. Mullins in the company of another priest, this one named Moling. Moling couldn't be any more different than Ronan, but that might be because Sweeney of the Wilds couldn't be any more different than Sweeney the Warrior King. The pair meet with kind words and a mutual love of that Christian God. An aside, if this ending rings hollow, if this unrepentant pagan seems too contrite and circumspect, do remember that we only have this story at all because it was recorded by the monks in their own holy manuscript. A redemption story would have certain conventional elements in their book, and so Sweeney follows that script. Sweeney makes a home in Moling's community, and it seems that the story will be rewritten now that he no longer wanders lonely and alone. But alas, Ronan's spear still hovers over Sweeney's head. Moling knew he could not change Sweeney completely. He declared that Sweeney could wander from dawn to dusk, but he must always return to St. Mullins so Moling could record his stories. Unfortunately, his orders that Sweeney was to have a room and board were not particularly specific. The cook, Murgle, would perform this duty each night by grinding her heel into the closest cow pie and filling the dung basin with new milk. <sighs> Women are not treated particularly well in the original version of this tale, a fact that we have not lingered upon in this retelling. They deserve their due in some other version. But suffice it to say that it's all part of the predictable narrative arc when an insult from a neighbor woman and gossip from a sister-in-law lead to Murgle's husband, Mongan, assassinating Sweeney in a manufactured fit of jealous rage. Sweeney is remembered as a king, a saint, a holy fool, and is given a Christian burial. But first, in his last great lament, he speaks of how he preferred the blackbird song and the mountain grouse crying and the water sip from an open palm to all the civilized comforts and consecrated cups of the settled world. He still dies with repentance on his lips, but it's clear that he still carries the sacred cycles of nature and the infinite beauty of the wilds in his heart. And that is a story of Sweeney, because I don't think it's possible to tell the story of Sweeney. That's a story of a man turned bird out in the wilds. 
I invited Michaeline to be with me here in this story because she is someone who helps guide people through the internal wilderness and across great internal journeys in some very remarkable and unique ways. And before we started recording, Michaeline and I were talking about this idea of how Sweeney's really moment of transformation is a curse. And it's also a trauma, right? Which I think is what many people experience. And there's also this idea of initiation, which I think is part of Michaeline's work too. So Michaeline, if we start there, help us understand a bit about your work and perhaps how there might be some interesting parallels that you see with this wild journey of collapse and healing and all the things in between. There's quite a bit. So one of the things that I offer and do and I'm honored to is to hold safe and sacred space for people who have experienced plant medicine on their own. And so they come to me and they integrate all the things that they learned, which can be very, very confusing and very symbolic. And so it is such a good idea to integrate it. And a lot of times, especially if people are like, oh, I'm just going to try this and I heard good things and they do it in maybe a place that's not safe and sacred and they have a, a journey that is very, very confusing, sometimes dark mm. and sometimes very scary. And so part of the things that I offer is to come sit with me. I'll meet you where you are and we'll have a chat about what is confusing. And you can tell me because I understand because I have been there. Mm. And so we will sit and we will talk and they will tell me of their medicine journey and they will tell me the things they are fearful for or about. Uh, they will tell me the symbolism that happened throughout and we will go through the woods of all that and to to come out the other side to the meadow with the sunshine and to be able to work from there. Michaeline, I just realized you're the moling of the story. You're that priestess mm. at the end that helps to integrate the 20 years of Sweeney's wandering, all of the crises that got him to that point, all the mistakes he's made and all the yearning he's had. Because Moling, it was so important for him to say, you can go wander, but come back because I need you to tell me the stories. Mm -hmm. I hadn't really put that together till right this instant. Oh, that kind of fills me with so much joy. <laughs> oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And it's interesting too that, of course, as healer, Moling was healer and priest, and you are healer and psychotherapist. You can't save anybody but you can hold them and their experience so that they can be that best version of themselves. Yes. And to me, that's the most sacred part. I mean, it's all so sacred, but the most sacred part is just to be able to hold that space because how often in life we don't feel held and we don't know how to hold ourselves let alone find someone that we trust and feel safe with so that we can let our guard down. We can let those 
dark secrets, those conflicts within us, those places where we think people will judge us and the shadow pieces, which are all a part of us and all need to be held and need to be befriended because that's who we are. I truly, honestly believe in people and their abilities to heal themselves and to go through life and that I can hold the lantern. I can't do it for them, like you said, but I can hold the lantern down the path and I'm a couple steps farther through my own experiences. And it's my honor and pleasure to hold that lantern and to say, come on, it's going to be okay. It's not as dark as you think it is. Right. Oh. I love that we began at the ending of this story with that brightness, because I feel like that's going to hold us through this whole conversation that we need to have about the ways in which we see Sweeney as someone who was a man of violence, who committed great acts of violence, someone who was a soldier who, in the vernacular of the story, went mad on the battlefield, and someone who ended up having to leave everything he had because he was sent away for his terrible crimes, lost his marriage, his family, everything that he knew. And in conversations you and I have had, that there's a lot of parallels, both the work you've done as a healer, as a therapist of people with PTSD and complex trauma, but also that they've been doing work with psychedelics and other plant medicine with veterans. So there's just some really unique parallels here. I'm curious what that brings up for you as you kind of, as we think about the beginning of Sweeney's story, who he was and why he had to leave, the suffering he caused and the suffering he went through. What came through for you when you heard that part of the story? Really at first, just because it is so parallel and it is so similar to my experiences even with people with complex trauma and veterans in that there's so much compassion because what a challenging, there's not even a big enough word, I don't think, but what a challenging place to have to be to put away some of the beliefs that you had in order to, to go to battle, in order to fight for a cause you think is right and seemingly so violent and to experience violent upon yourself as well and to survive and live through that only to come home and it still be with you every day and to not know where relief might come and trying over and over maybe it's over here maybe it's over there maybe i need to connect with god oh maybe that doesn't feel right and to just be on that 20 year and seemingly so i'm sure even longer it seems that where can i find peace where can i find this patch of nature essentially or this patch of peace and the psychedelics and plant medicine has been over the years now, I think the testing has been over 10 years now, the research, 
to give this peace and to be able to work through these traumatic events and these traumatic experiences to and not experience them physically and not experiencing them as we would in this state of consciousness it allows them to have and live not through it again but to be able to process in a way that it doesn't incite a trauma response so that they can move forward and keep moving forward through it it is beautiful and it is powerful and it isn't instant and a magic pill so to speak because the work still has to be done as well besides just taking the medicine but it is a a most beautiful process to to bring peace and to not have to stay in that heightened survival awareness all the time and to start to learn how to live again as opposed to just survive. Wow. Using sacred plant medicine as a medicine, as a form of healing, is one of many routes that one could take, right? And it could be the sense that for some, it is going out into the wilderness and being in commune with nature. For some people, it is prayer. For some people, it is talk therapy. But it just kind of makes me realize that even if Sweeney himself was not availing of specific plant medicines, he was somebody who was healing through the medicine of nature. And I feel like that's a lot of what you're often talking about as, yes, here's the plant medicine. It's one of many ways to get to that new state of consciousness where healing is possible. Yeah, I would say that's completely true. Just like any other thing, I always say you can't do any healing in a box. Mm. It's part of the challenge of the current medical system. Well, you have these symptoms, it's this, and here, take this. Right. When we're talking about humans and our personhood and our states of consciousness, and, and there are many, we can't be put into a box. I just don't think it's possible. Right. And we've all had experiences when people have tried to put us in that box. Mm. And so Plant medicine, there are different types of plant medicine, whereas psilocybin might not be right for someone. And just sitting in a field of flowers might be perfect mm. for someone to find their peace and to be at one and to connect with the greater or the great spirit or God or goddess. And I think it's important too, when facilitating this kind of work, that there is that what is going to be best for the client? What is going to be best for that other beautiful human sacred soul that's sitting across from me? Because it isn't my expertise on that person. We're only the expert on ourselves. I can guide and I can ask questions, a lot of questions, <laughs> and get enough information too where I can ask the right questions for people to tell me what's going to be best for them. Right. There isn't the pressure of this is what it needs to look like. You have to go to church mm -hmm. or you have to go sit next to a tree or you have to pray 
so many times a day. It's going to be what speaks most to your sacred being and your heart. And it will be different. And sometimes it's a beautiful combination. Mm. And sometimes people realize after taking the ceremony with plant medicine that, oh my gosh, there is a connection here that I didn't even know existed, Mm. not only to my highest self, but even something greater than me that can also hold this space and that I can tap into anytime I need. (sighs) What a blessing in and of itself, just that remembering of, right, I am held by something larger than myself, not just the confines of my own brain, my own coping systems, my own past. (sighs) I think I needed to hear that in this moment. (laughs) It makes me curious about your journey to this work and what it was that called you here. You have your doctorate in psychotherapy, right? Mm -hmm. And how long has plant medicine been something that's really intrigued you and been a source of healing that you've offered and gone to? Well, it started, oh gosh, in 2012 now. I often, when people ask me that question, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's been that long. (laughs) I really started my deep, deep healing with the family constellation work, which really led me to, I want to connect more. I want Mm. to know more. And I couldn't find it anywhere. I couldn't find it in Mm. talk therapy and constellations got me so far. And I realized that there is much more. And from there, I thought, well, you know, and coming from a person who I never smoked anything, I'm not, you know, I was an athlete in college. So like that wasn't an option. And how do I raise myself to the state of consciousness? I couldn't sit still good enough to meditate. And, you know, it was too hard. So I was introduced to this and invited and felt so honored And the very first time I experienced this, it was like going home. Even Mm -hmm. inside my journey, every person, every entity, every animal, everything I met was saying to me, welcome back. We've missed you. It's been a long time. Mm -hmm. And I was just filled with such peace and such love. And from a person who didn't trust many things, other people, let alone my own self, and being afraid to connect due to abandonment and loss in my own life um, when I was very, very young, to be able to even have a taste of that Mm. and to know with every cell in my being that this is true, this is real, just launched me into the next and the next and the next. And as I was doing it, I thought to myself, as many people do, and I hear from many people that, oh my gosh, everyone needs to experience this. And how can I hold this space? And how can I, because I was in the midst of my getting my doctorate when I was experiencing all these things, and I don't know how I did it. All I know is that I wouldn't be here today without it. And I'm still learning and I'm still growing and I'm still doing all the things to meet people where they are in the most sacred ways I can. And also researching and making a point to honor 
all the indigenous peoples and ceremonies even before that to say, is it okay? Mm. I ask the energies of and the spirits of the medicine, is this okay? And I have built a relationship with it to be able to say, thank you, thank you, thank mm. you. Yeah. Well, what I love hearing in that is that idea of reciprocity, mm. that as much as you chose the plants, you chose this work, the plants are choosing you in a conscious way and you're staying in relationship just as people are choosing you to integrate this work, how people are learning from you, how to facilitate this work. That sense of reciprocity is so, well, it's so much of what I know of you anyway, but I feel like that's so much of what your idea of sacredness underlines. And the other thing I want to loop back to in what you said was that sense of how in first experiencing this medicine, it was like coming home. And how powerful that is in a conversation about a story that's about exile. And it's about never being able to have that. And knowing that, my goddess, most of us are Sweeney in this world, wandering around looking for a place to belong, to lay our heads, to say, I am nourished by this piece of land. I know where I will lay my head tomorrow night mostly metaphorically, because luckily we're mm -hmm. secure in our homes in so many cases. But that sense of truly being at home is much more elusive than I think we necessarily even acknowledge in our everyday lives when things look pretty steady on the day to day, at least in terms of, again, where we will lay our heads on any given night. Mm -hmm. I even, when I was taking some notes, I wrote down so often we're trying to find home mm. and we're trying to find it outside of ourselves. And these journeys, these medicines, these integrations help us to find the home within ourselves that we mm. think that we have been disconnected from due to trauma, due to our life experiences and our disconnections. And so what I find is that these really truly help us find a home in our own hearts and our own souls and to also help us realize that again for me it's the work in progress that the sacredness of our souls are held in the sacredness of our bodies and our homes these are our homes for now yeah at this time in this consciousness on this earth with all the things happening and to allow ourselves to, I think, to feel what home feels like to us, because we get to define what home feels like to us. And we get to find what our home is and what it will look like and who gets to come into it as well. And what a, an immense opportunity and invitation that is. And that's actually pretty frightening. Right. Especially mm -hmm. we look at this story that's offering like, here's Christianity. Here's the creed. This is the way we do it. And of course, the nature of this story being paganism moving into the very Christian mm -hmm. doctrine, 2000 years of the church to where we are right now in this 21st century moment, when we know that so many people are moving towards being spiritual, but not religious, moving out of organized religion. So that sense of saying 
we can create our own homes within ourselves, within our choices, within the bones that hold us and the plants we have relationship with is so exciting and necessary. And you realize how frightening that is. Mm -hmm. And that's why human culture has organized itself the way that it is, because that choose your own adventure lifestyle, choose your own bones and home. <gasps> yes, thank you. Oh, God, no. Seems to come up all in the same breath, right? Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are still times where I'm like, are you sure? Are you <laughs> sure this is what are we doing this? You know, and right. I've learned most times that it's like, okay, if I'm fearful and I know I'm going to be safe, right? For like I'm not going to bring physical harm on myself. Right. The, this is where I need to go in. And I can walk as slowly as I like because slower is better. But yes, it is all in one breath. Like, ooh, that would be amazing. And oh my gosh, that would mean what? That would mean, would I have to give up something? Would I have to disregard a piece of myself? Would I have to forget or leave people behind? Mm. And it's yes and no. Because it informs us so much of ourselves, then we be, we can become discerning and then we can become our greatest advocate for who and what we want things to look at. And yes, it is scary. And it is also a chance to befriend those things that we are most scared of. So this idea of befriending our fears, just to bring it back to the story we've just explored around this very violent figure who exhibits many traits we might associate with toxic masculinity, who in other ways was the king who was trying to protect a land that he loved and a way of life that he loved and who got sent out into this great, vast, unknown wilderness that I think it had its moments of sublime connection and opening and realization and also had a lot of suffering and was very much like a very long purgatory, to use the languaging of, of the Christianity that he eventually embraced again. Well, I'm going to ask you, what in this story scares you most? Mm. That's a great question. And my brain first jumped in and went, well, the violence, of course, the violence. And then I went, hmm, was it the violence? Yes, violence, of course, is scary and is very like it makes my body hurt just thinking about it. And also, if I really tap down into more of my heart space. It's the suffering. Yeah. It's the suffering that I think that I'm most scared of. And I think he was too, knowing full well the curse on him, right? Oh, not only am I going to be pierced by something, but I'm also going to suffer in all the years that leads up to it. And I will not know when it's going to happen. And so I think if I'm, I'm really feeling it from my body and being completely transparent. It's the suffering to endure and sometimes the perceived suffering that growth can bring. And so I know for me, 
for a long time in my life, it was, well, you have to suffer to create something great. Mm. And finally, someone asked me, a mentor asked me, um, what is it about the suffering that has you think that you can't be great without it? That you have to feel something so terrible and torturous, mm -hmm. physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever it is, and then it's okay to do something great yeah. and to feel good. But can you really feel good after all that suffering? Will you allow yourself? And so just the pondering, and I, and I still, it's one of my challenges today of, oh, suffering. I must mm. suffer. We all are suffering. And it's kind of like, do I have a choice in this? Yes. Is life hard? Oh my gosh, hundred percent and then some, and it has its moments. And I do notice that when mired in so much suffering or looking back at the suffering, I left no room for joy. I left no room for the celebration of, hey, yes, this was hard and there was suffering. And look, you're here. You're here. Can you celebrate that you're here? Right. And often I'm like, eh, well, what's the next thing? <laughs> In that you so perfectly encapsulate the story, just to return to it once more, because of course, one of the things that Seamus Heaney underlined was like all Sweeney ever did was whinge about how terrible everything was. And for those of us who have been to Ireland, who've lived in Ireland, who are of Ireland and live there, it's a gorgeous place. The fact mm. that all he could ever see was the suffering and the watercress and saying, where's the next spot I have to go is just an interesting thing to reflect on as you mm. as you speak of it in that way. Well, I don't want to leave us on a note of suffering. I'd love to leave us on a note of sacred blessing. And I feel like you have something that you might offer us. Do you have a sacred blessing for us as we close? Mm, a sacred blessing. I think my sacred blessing would be that we all take our journeys and know we don't have to take them alone. Mm -hmm. And that we are far greater than any suffering that we could ever perceive or endure or experience. Michaeline, thank you for journeying with me through this story, well, through all the beautiful terrain we've covered together. I so value you and your insight and your work and your friendship. How can our listeners learn more about you and what you do? Well, thank you, Marisa. I cherish you and your work and the way you walk in sacredness in the world. It is magnificent. And a couple ways to find me are on my website, which is constellationhealingarts.com. And I also do workshops for Family Constellations every six to eight weeks or so on a Saturday, a sacred Saturday, actually, it's called. 
And also I am facilitating a training with my dear healer and soul sister friend, Martina. It is called the Sacred Immersion Training. And we are teaching others how to hold safe and sacred space for themselves and other people with plant medicines and also without. Excellent. Well, I will be sure to include links to all of those wonderful resources so that people can find you and your brilliance. Michaeline, thank you so much for being part of Network Storytelling. It means the world. Oh, thank you so much, Risa. It was my honor to be here. Oh, this is beautiful. Thank you for listening to Network Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram, at Knotwork Podcast, and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, Ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.